Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by the Grassroots Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. Let's begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing imperialist, white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal, capitalist settler colonialism in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way out is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Since we're unapologetically truth-telling, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. To begin on that note, I invite you to join me for one deep breath right now so that we can be as present as is realistically possible moving forward with this dialogue. If you're feeling it, do inhale then exhale with me right now. Thank you for showing up to do this work. Let's dive right in. To the place where we can all attain emancipation from oppression, break the chains from Haiti to Tibet and worldwide. Don't forget the resistance in our roots and resilience in our breath. In the blood of our veins, liberation runs. We are standing on the shoulders of the ancient ones. Dr. Lewis Gordon is professor and head of the Department of Philosophy at Yukon Stores and honorary president of the Global Center for Advanced Studies. He previously taught at Brown University, where he founded the Department of Africana Studies, and Temple University, where he was the Laura H. Cornell Professor of Philosophy and founder of the Center for Afro-Jewish Studies and the Institute for the Study of Race and Social Thought. His visiting appointments include philosophy and government at the University of the West Indies at Mona, Jamaica, visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg, and honorary professor in Uhuru, the unit for the humanities at the university currently known as Rhodes in South Africa, where he was formerly the Nelson Mandela Distinguished Visiting Chair in Political and International Studies. His previous appointments include the Boaventura de Sosa Santos Chair in the Faculty for Economics at the University of Coimbra, Portugal, the European Union Chair in Europhilosophy at the Université Toulouse-Jean-Jacques, France, writer and resident at the Burbeck School of Law at the University of London, professor of Africana Studies, Contemporary Religious Thought and Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, visiting professor of African and African-American Studies at Yale University, and philosophy and African-American Studies at Purdue University. He's the author of many books, including the 2021 Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization, the 2021 On Philosophy, Decolonization, and Race, and the forthcoming Fear of Black Consciousness, 
A few of his major works include the 1995 book Bad Faith and Anti-Black Racism, Fanon and the Crisis of European Man, the 1997 Her Majesty's Other Children, which won the Gustavus Meyer Award for Outstanding Work on Human Rights, the 2000 book Existentia Africana, the 2006 Disciplinary Decadence, the 2008 An Introduction to Africana Philosophy, the 2015 What Fanon Said, the 2006 co-authored A Companion to African-American Studies, and the 2006 Not Only the Master's Tools. He co-edits the journal Philosophy and Global Affairs, the book series Global Critical Caribbean Thought, and the book series Academics, Politics, and Society in the Post-COVID World. He's a former president of the Caribbean Philosophical Association, for which he now serves as its chairperson of awards and global collaborations. Well, thank you again for being down to come through for a sequel dialogue. Uh, you know, I know that so many of our folks have been really deeply grieving, actually, just in the past month since we have connected last some of the same old atrocities uh, that were anticipatable and some new ones, unfortunately. And so I would really appreciate us starting off just kind of delving into some of what you're noticing around that, especially for people that are organizing, trying to survive, trying to fight the good fight amidst, right, these ongoing atrocities, the trauma that resides in our bodies, our responses to all of that. Um, talk about overwhelm on top of overwhelm. So I'm so curious to get a sense of how you're sitting with that, what you're noticing. Well, what I'm noticing is that the repercussions there are are more than many people may expect and part of it is because people are many people many analysts commentators pundits are looking for a return of the same and so people are looking for the familiar but there's so many things that are not only unfamiliar but also because and this is connected to a lot of what we talked about the last time. Um, a lot of people don't know how to think relationally. And, when, and one of the things when you think relationally is that you begin to realize that we're not fixed things with the world swirling around us and we just stay the same. If we understand that we're relationships, that means different or new relationships create new versions of us. So Although we know we're dealing with disease and we're dealing with all kinds of political upheavals, there are things that people are not expecting. For instance, there are new forms of physical illnesses just from people sitting all the time. Today, when we're thinking about rest, it's hard to believe but more people are fatigued than before. And this includes people who are not afflicted with the um, COVID-19, with, with the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. And that is because you see, part of our body's capacity to rest is connected to our being active. And so the idea of being quarantined, being sedentary, that's leading to new forms of afflictions a new kind of fatigue. Uh, and then when we think beyond all of those, we also uh, will need to understand that right now, there are other there are other things 
a lot like latent genes that are being enacted. A good example is, there was a piece that was written for philosophy and global affairs by Kazashi Neboa. Uh, and it's a piece on, um, on the environmental hazards of, of um, nuclear radiation. And a lot of people don't realize that the nuclear experiments and also the various nuclear meltdowns, uh, our little bubble of air we live in called our planet has been contaminated. And so these things are spreading all over the globe. And right now uh, there's a rise, none of people are not paying attention to it, but you're finding cancer all over the place not just in people, but in animals. The number of friends I know, and especially because so many people are looking for comfort from their pets. The number of people who have taken their pets to vets or just discovered their animals are dying from cancer. The, and then of course there are people, the number of people I know who are afflicted with cancer. And as all of this is going on, there's also the reality of rapacious capitalism. Because as we know, there are, there's, there's now a trillionaire, Bezos. You know, I mean, <laughs> we may not agree with um, Bill Gates's politics, but you know, Bill Gates decided he'd rather give away some of his money. He doesn't have to be a trillionaire. There are so many people who would be, if there's a way in which right now, the distribution of wealth is not only about equity, it also is about developing policies that would be more ecologically sound to create a healthier planet, a healthier environment. Because of course, if we're not just extracting wealth all the time, we can now start investing things such as say, um, um, healthy, you know, better air, better water, less lead, uh, try to find a way to contain um, um, nuclear, I mean, you know, forms of contamination. And then at basic social levels, one of the things that we also uh, have, to, have to rethink is the question of how we relate to each other. Because so many people have passed away, but they have passed away in, a, in phenomenological terms. And by phenomenological terms, what I mean is what we're able to experience and see. They're passing away the way in the global south, people have suffered under uh, certain regimes. Uh, they've used the language of disappeared. Now we know they've died, but the normal rituals of dying is families around, you see the body, you meet, you grieve, but there are people who are just gone, they've disappeared. And the long-term traumatic effects on that. Well, I think this is a moment there need to be more conversation, particularly with women in the global South, because a lot of the activists around these issues of the disappeared have been, have been women activists, particularly in places like Mexico have lost their daughters, the mothers in Argentina, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, if we talk about mothers in Uganda, uh, those who have dealt with uh, these issues in just so many, many parts of the world. Um, and so 
those are some of the things I know I could go on and on about this, but those are some of the things that are going on my mind that are going on in my mind in relation to that question. And relation to the last part, there's a wonderful piece by Elva Orozco Mendoza. And the title of her piece is On Hearing the Daughter's Call, Feminicide, Freedom and Maternal Collective Action in Northern Mexico. She's a political theorist who reflects upon this from the global South, but her story really, even though she's not thinking about this specific issue, that connection around why we need to reach a point of being politically active to deal with the disappeared. Because as we know, the political realm is the realm of appearance, it's the realm of speech, it's the realm of being seen. And this is part of what we're going to have to do if we're gonna have any hope of healing. You can say that again. I'm so appreciative of what you brought in. Uh, and I know that for so many folks, there is this in part, right, capitalism induced pressure to get over mourning or grieving in ways that are, it would be kind to call it culturally incompetent, right? Um, where you never even had, right, a moment to pause, right, collectively, let alone personally. And then there's just this expectation, like it's been a week, the DSM literally even wants to pathologize, like, what do you mean it's three weeks after someone's death and you're like still feeling sad, right? So this normative approach that's so grief illiterate, right? That is so totally death illiterate in the settler colonial US can get uh, assimilated into people's consciousnesses in ways that are so devastating. Uh, and so there's really something to be said for, I mean, the parents of the students at Ayotzinapa that are like, oh no, we're still having this conversation, right? Or the right family members of so many folks dealing with so many femicides for sure in Mexico and elsewhere. Uh, and so I really appreciate your right bringing in right some of those communities and their ongoing struggles that not only deserve solidarity period full stop but also can teach us so much about right how we can show up more fully to get free if we take seriously mortality that of ourselves and one another in a way that's not authorized by this capitalist colonial death machine. So yeah, I really appreciate your bringing that in. I mean, what would our organizing look like if people had a different orientation to mortality, to right death, to grieving? I imagine that that could be emancipatory in ways that I would like to see us taking much more seriously and embodying moving forward. Um, and I don't even know if we're going to be able to substantially mobilize the kinds of revolts that we're capable of if people don't come to terms with that. Yeah, one of the things that has always bothered me, and I say this as a person who just learned a lot from lots of losses, um, I wrote a piece last year, in fact, a meditation on loss. Um, and when I say losses, I'm talking about loved ones. You see, what people don't understand when you lose people is um, you lose the irreplaceable. Uh, in fact, in the book I, I just wrote, Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization, I have a chapter just called Irreplaceability. And one of the problems of a world that's dominated by commodification and ongoing production is the notion of replaceability. 
and the ethics of replaceability is posed onto people in such a way that there's a hasty effort to tell you to get over it, to tell you to treat the loss of a loved one as if it's like losing a shoe. You just get another one. <laughs> and what people don't realize who, who push that mentality is the added existential violence that's placed on the survivor of the person who is passed. When you're in that situation, when you're realizing this person will never, ever, ever, ever return, will never be there. The only thing that keeps that person, even evidence of that person's existence is in your heart and your memory. Because even in their artifacts, their artifacts don't mean the same to other people as they do to you. Whether it's their clothes, their smell, their chair, whether it's even the shared moment of listening to a song. What I say um, when I'm dealing with the aggrieved is do remember you have a right to grief. Because when we tell people to get over it, we don't realize it, but we're subtextually saying to them that they don't have a right to grieve. And in a way, it makes them go through shame from grieving. And it forestalls coming to grips with the reality of loss. So the thing in the end, uh, what most people who are grieving want is to realize they're not alone through others understanding the loss. It's not that they uh, have the same loss, but it's extraordinary what happens when you do say to somebody, oh no, you have a right to grieve. If I were in your situation, I would be experiencing the loss of a part of myself. And that is a moment in which people begin to understand. This is not because you see, if you don't realize that you have lost a part of yourself, then you're walking around pretending to be whole and you start living a lie. Well, what has happened is the crushing of a world and the realization that what you're building is not, you're not rebuilding your world. You're actually now in a project of building another world. It's a world that includes loss. And that's the big difference. And this is where it becomes problematic in our epoch, in our political moment. Because if people don't take seriously that we can't go back. If we try to, we're going to repeat the conditions that have brought us here. What we need to do is understand that there's a lot of damage done in what brought us here. And there is a, and, and it's almost a lack, it's really a lack of respect for the dead to cover it up. We need to make it wide open. That's right. 
Yeah, and how profoundly anti-relational, right? Because also what's being expected performatively, if like you're not allowed to grieve, so then what are we supposed to be posturing, right? So there's this like suppression, repression, induction of shame, and then what ends up getting translated, right, or festering in some other area, because it's there regardless of whether or not there's the maturity or the capacity in certain spaces to be able to acknowledge it. Taking it back, you mentioned trauma. What happens when, right, we've still collectively hardly even started to acknowledge, right, I mean, so many seismic cultural traumas, right, let alone then interpersonally, right, all of these compounding factors that are just sort of piling on top of one another. Meanwhile, someone is expected to show up to their gig in the nonprofit industrial complex and have a sort of, right, perky attitude and pretend like things are more or less, right, uh, salvageable in these conditions that frankly aren't for so many people. Um, I'm curious around your understanding of, you know, some people talk about according to sort of psychological speak in the West, right, complex post-traumatic stress, or maybe chronic post-traumatic stress, or maybe chronic complex post-traumatic stress, or if we're invoking that, right, dominant language, it would be considered a disorder, when in actuality, what's being referenced there is, frankly, more the rule than the exception for so many of us, and certainly isn't going to be anything different until we change these systems that are creating, right, whatever that is that we're referring to within our bodies and collectively, uh, that again, so often there's all the performativity to pretend like you're over it, right, if not, then you're going to individually get pathologized or othered or stigmatized in some kind of way, and I know that that can be really formidable for so many people to come up against on a daily basis in these interactions in their lives where they are being pressured to put on some kind of face that's entirely inauthentic and insulting, frankly, to the dead, to themselves, like you said. It's funny, this week I was uh, teaching Kaiji Nishitani with my students. When I teach my classes, I always open up with music that's actually the thesis of the lecture. I'll come back to that in a second, but... Uh, in the conversation of, and for those who are listening or viewing who don't know, Kaiji Nishitani was a Japanese and Buddhist philosopher. And he argued against covering up reality. He argued that one problem with much of what's called Western civilization is that it, it wants to ontologize, it wants to make being such that it fails to deal with always, every time you assert being, you're covering it over something that is absent. It's striking, you know, uh, Nietzsche, you know, the German philosopher, philologist, etc., basically said, you know, if it's suffering you want to get rid of, it's better never to have been born. <laughs> However, of course, suffering is a complex notion. Okay, there's misery suffering. But there's another kind of suffering, you know, the suffering of interacting with life. I always explain to people the reason we need to sleep is because we have no idea the, in the positive sense of trauma, but it's still trauma that we put our body through each day, just by walking, moving around. We are brutalizing ourselves, the whole gravity on us, all of that, 
And the word restore, when we rest, we're restoring ourselves. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you see, there is an intimate relationship between life and death. There's an intimate relationship between yes and no, between the positive and the negative. And there are many philosophical traditions that talk about this. But we also see it when we think about decolonization, decoloniality, etc. Catherine Walsh, as an example, reminds us that there's not only decolonizing from, but there's decoloniality for. Franz Fanon also said that humanity is not simply a no. Our freedom is not simply what we say no to. Our freedom is also about what we say yes to. And what we say yes to always, always carries risk precisely because we don't know the outcomes. We never know the outcomes before the performance. In the world of regulative ideals, the world in which everything has to be governed by predictability, by the serialization of life, etc., the normative model, the value system, becomes what I call the living dead. It's no accident that we're in an age of zombie movies. You know, the zombie is a rather interesting um, monster, if you will, a creature. Because, you know, zombies originally were not hordes or packs. And zombies originally didn't eat you. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it comes out of slavery. In fact, one of, it, one of the psychoanalytical projections from white supremacy was about zombies, because if you look at early zombie stories in films, they were obsessed with, and if you go look back, you'll see white zombie. And that's because you see the enslaved people understood that enslavement and exploitation had as their goal, the zombification of people to make people unfree labor. Okay, and a zombie was a reanimated corpse that was your slave. And the idea was to make indigenous and black peoples and, and ultimately there's a form of Marxist analysis that pointed out that there was a desire for the worker to be like an animated corpse, to be a laboring dead person. It's no accident even the word robot is from the Czech word for slave, okay? However, something happened. It started off with the first the white fear because implicit in saying white zombie is somehow saying zombies are okay as long as they're black or brown. White people are not supposed to be zombies. But we live in an age, as we know, the majority of images now of zombies are whites, are white zombies. And it's interesting what happened when became the white zombie because it moved from the individual reanimated corpse. Uh, and it's interesting, it was contingent historical reason. So it may sound weird as I'm talking about this, but one of my areas is philosophy of horror. I write also on film and horror films. 
And a lot of people don't know this. What transformed the whole understanding of zombies? So this is a kind of interesting thing. What, what led to it was something very different, but of course it took off because it was speaking to something in the culture, global culture actually. What originally happened was basically the movie Night of the Living Dead. Okay, because what it is is the, the, the writer and the producers, it's a great story about it. It was supposed to be a schlocky driving film. Some car salesman paid to you know, get it produced. But there was a film student, one of his favorite novels was I Am Legend. And I Am Legend connects to the present now because it was about a pandemic that started from bats of all things. And you know to talk about COVID-19 with bats. And basically the, the virus led to everybody except one dude, because when he was a child, he was bitten by a bat, but he had developed antibodies who did not get the, the disease because he had the antibodies. And the disease was vampirism. So the whole planet became vampires except for this one dude. And the whole novel is about him dealing with it. So this fellow wanted to do this, but he couldn't get, they didn't have money. He couldn't get the permission to, to do I Am Legend. So he created a different film. And so he created Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead, as you know, is about a group of people who are, people are turning into zombies and they get locked up in a house and the zombies are all around. And what's, they, again, they didn't plan this, but the person, they, it, they were looking for who would be the heavy, the lead. And this six foot eight or 10, I don't know, black man walks in the room and they're like, this is the dude. So the, in the novel, it's a white guy, but in the movie, it's a black guy. And the thing about it is zombies up to this point do not eat people. But you could see the subtext is vampires and vampires do eat people. <laughs> they drink people. So what he did to avoid copyright infringement was to change it to zombies and have them hordes eating people. And the, the rest, of course, what's powerful about this film is after they fight through the night to survive, the only person left is this guy. And you know what you look like if you spent an entire night fighting off zombies? You start to walk around looking like a zombie. And so at the end, the, um, the zombie hunters saw him walking like this and just shot him in the head and threw him on a pile of corpse and burned him. And that was the end of the movie. Now, why I bring up this movie is it's nihilistic horror. And you see, we live in an age of nihilism. We're struggling in an age for meaning, but not just meaning in the existential or metaphysical sense. We're also living with the consequences of political nihilism. Because you see, the other kind of nihilism could be personal. That's where individuals may commit suicide or, or they may just not care about the world. And then there is nihilism of values. This is where 
a nihilist would not understand what I said in the beginning of this conversation when I talked about the irreplaceability of, a, of others. Because from a nihilist point of view, everybody dies. It's just end of story. <laughs> Who cares whether it's you, me, our loved ones, they're just meat that will eventually get worms, disappear. So that's, that's that nihilism. But political nihilism is different. You see, you could, political nihilism is where you want people to believe that their actions don't matter, that their actions cannot transform mechanisms of power. That has been a concerted effort of neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Because the because you see, neoliberalism and neoconservatism, neoliberalism wants capitalism to be the conclusion of history. Neoconservatism wants capitalism and Western civilization to be the conclusion of all history. That's why neoconservatism is always racist, okay? To achieve that goal, they must eradicate in the minds and hearts of everybody else on the planet, the idea of possibility. They must make us believe that there's nothing that can be done beyond the privatization of the planet. But we see all the damage privatization is doing. It's pretty clear that we need a form of global public political responsibility for our planet. We need to do this, okay? You, but political nihilism is to destroy faith in institutions that involve working together to do that. It's to conceal you into the hyper-individuality that now makes you stuck at the level of metaphysical and personal nihilism. And what we need as part of our project is to fight against political nihilism. You know, we're talking right now, uh, you see this, you know, but it, that's my talit <laughs> there. Right? Uh, sometimes I do uh, Jewish rituals. Uh, and, um, you know, I, it's there because uh, another time I was speaking down here that we had my whole thing on. But the, um, you know, we're in the period of Passover, Pesach, you know, and you know, this is the story of Shemot in Judaism, but Christians know it as Exodus. And I wrote something recently about this. I talked about the fact that neoconservative and neoliberal Jews don't wanna talk about liberation. But the quintessential story of Jewish people is liberation. And the reason many don't is because liberation means you gotta talk about colonialism, okay? Well, the liberation, one of the things in the, that you talk about at a Seder, which is the ritual meal to talk about the struggle for liberation, is something really astute. And a lot of people miss this because the big heroes in the story and heroines, Miriam, Aaron, Moses, they don't get to the promised land. A lot of people miss that. Moses gets to look at it from a mountain, but does not enter. This is a powerful story of political significance because you see, 
It's saying for everybody who's doing political work that the struggle is not for you. First of all, on a practical level, could you imagine trying to run a society of Moses came in along with you? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, how are you going to say, yo, Moses, we disagree? But this is a lot of things post-colonial states miss, that the liberation fighters, the people who are to get you there, because Miriam, Miriam was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. She would find water where people couldn't find water. She would find a way to get people to dance when they were in sorrow. She was the rock. She was amazing. And she dies. You know what I mean? All of these, I mean, and the message is not a nihilistic message. The message is about recognizing that a community must take power for the future of the society. That is not nihilistic. It is nihilistic if we take the position that we cannot as a community act without the permission of a charismatic, powerful, or authoritarian leader. The people must have faith in the ability to think for themselves, which means that one has to have a profound love and faith in democracy. And so that is part of what anti-political nihilism is about. Anti-political nihilism is about a commitment to political responsibility. And the enemies of that, the people who are against democracy, want us to be political nihilists. They want us to believe there's nothing we can do. There's nowhere we can go. And so it's very important for us right now to begin to reflect, right? I mean, I know I started with zombies, but you see the zombie part, of course, is the way, is the construction that anti-democratic forces want because what they want is for the rest of us to be market commodified consumers. That's right, zombies, if you will. Right, the zombies are the living dead that only consume. Okay. We need to be givers, mm. the people, of action. Right. Well, it's entirely consistent. You know, I mean, that's a core tenet of liberation psychology, right? Taking it back to Ignacio Martin Barro is right. Fatalism is one of the principal things that oppression does, colonialism in particular, to the psyches of people experiencing subjugation, right? Is that lie that becomes so pernicious within our imagination, like don't even try, throw your hands up in the air, don't even bother, there's nothing you can do, all of this fuckery is inevitable, right? So then it's totally a futile endeavor to attempt to do a thing. Uh, and don't even get me started on the zombification piece. Uh, you know, one of the things that for me was so frustrating, taking it back, say, a dozen years ago or so, when there was such a craze of new zombie TV shows and movies and the like was like, 
where in the hell is the class analysis? Like the Haitian revolution, anyone? Like, let's actually talk about, like it was in a context of US military occupation of Haiti that all of a sudden you see, right? The first sort of pulp fiction, zombification movies, right? Being introduced into the mass psyche and the US to galvanize public support in part for this, right? US military occupation of the island, right? and. It's not lost on me that what is so often right lost in the storytelling is like, oh yeah, no, it was like the plantation owning class that was trying to zombify laborers. The laborers were not afraid of other laborers. They were afraid of the plantation owning class, right? That was seeking to exploit their labor through rendering them, right? Allegedly brain dead through poisoning them with this concoction, right? A little bit of a poisonous toad flesh and a little bit of some kind of psychotropic plant and some other ingredients, right? Um, and here I am just like looking at this like walking dead 28 days later, whatever in the hell, right? These forms of cultural production are. And what's the messaging in terms of power dynamics? Just like totally horizontal, be afraid of other people. There's like no analysis of power at all whatsoever. It's like legit unapologetic propaganda, right? Uh, and I so appreciate your pairing that with talking about vampirism too. Uh, my students that watch this are totally gonna laugh because uh, I'm writing a book on decolonial discernment right now. And I have a section on vampirism and a section on zombification. <laughs> and the section on zombification is in this chapter on apathy. So exactly right, that pacification and subduing of a people through this epic lie that there's no other way, right? So why bother even trying? Uh, and that is something that we see through, right? Capitalist consumerism, right? Like just get what you can while you can, like hedonism is the best that you can possibly imagine maybe reformism, right? There's no hope for revolution, just get as big of a piece of the pie as you can, even if it's rotten, even if it's not nutrient dense, even if it's disgusting, even if you don't want that pie to begin with, right? Uh, but that's so seductive for so many people. And where are the spaces or the outlets where people are even invited to substantially imagine otherwise, right? In the absence of that, of course, right? If those are the messages that they're swirling in and so much media that they're consuming, music, whatever it might be, we can understand why that would be compelling or seemingly right, the only form of meaning making in town for a lot of our loved ones. Sure, and, and among it too is we're dealing with a profound attack on intimacy and erotic life. Barnaby Barrett, uh, a brilliant, truly brilliant psychoanalyst, uh, he lives in South Africa, and um, he's written a trilogy of texts. On, I mean, lots of work. Uh, he's a philosopher and psychoanalyst and sexologist. And he reminds us that, you know, what's really striking is um, it, it, and a lot of people miss this. What capitalism fears and, and, and anthropomorphizing capitalism on purpose here, because you know my writings, I point out that actually capitalism functions as an idol, because you see, there's a distinction between markets and the market. Markets in the plural are actually intimate um, associations. Markets, humanity, human beings have had markets for more than a hundred thousand years. 
Because in the past, that's how we got news. That's how we connected. And in many societies, in fact, the people who run markets are women because there are lots of things that are connected to markets. Markets are heavily social. And this is not, you know, I mean, it's not that males can't be social, but, um, but when Euro-modern capitalism emerged, it saw something wrong with markets in the plural. And the problem it identified with markets was that they're too human. So the idea of dehumanizing markets became through idolizing a, an abstraction called the market, right? And which functions like a God that gobbles up everything. And the market that gobbles up everything as a God, the market then needs to have people not be social. And because within that, the thing about sociality is that all sociality has vulnerability, okay? But the whole idea of the other one is to have control and predictability. But here's the thing, in sociality, and this is what Barnaby Barrett points out, is all sociality depends upon communication. But communication is actually erotic. And the reason communication is erotic, we don't think about it, but it's profoundly intimate is because when we're actually communicating with another human being, where is the communication taking place? And if we put it into feminist analysis, there is a form of masculinity that imagines the self as closed, as the penetrator, which leaves the feminine as what? Open and the supposedly penetrate. Now we, we could deal with a complex part because to be open is actually very powerful. But for the insecure, the openness is looked at as vulnerability. So what happens? And here's the problem. If you're close, then no communication can take place because communication to take place, it must be inside of you. So there's something at the heart of communication that is erotic. It's intimate. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because you see, in a framework in which you have to control and be at war with intimacy, sex, as an example, isn't the problem. It's intimacy is the problem. And that's why we live in a period where there are people talking sex all over the place. But actually what freaks people out is intimacy. If you look at the language of what's been happening with this pandemic, the very fact that the neoliberal taking charge of the language is to say social distance. But anybody who just knows sociality and communication knows that you can be physically close, but socially distant by failing to communicate. But you can be physically distant and socially close. There are people who are closer in the period when we didn't have the technologies of connecting by writing letters. There are people whose heart are so connected by words. 
and even and intimately and erotically connected. And so the thing is, uh, I don't use the term social distance, I say physical distance, because anybody who's viewing this and it connects with them, we're socially close. You and I right now are communicating. But we're in this, but here's the thing about communicating. We didn't know exactly what we were gonna say when this conversation started. We had to have faith and commitment and respect for each other for the possibility of engaging each other in an ethical and human way. That means we are facing the contingent, the unpredictable. Capitalism hates that. <laughs> it wants the commodification of all of these things in such a way that it wants like, you know, I was in a conversation at a meeting once where I say like, there are people watching the Kim Kardashian model and those things where they're crass, they're presented, they're formulaic, they're predictable, but they're not dealing with the more profound elements of what happens when people are really thinking, really communicating. Uh, because right now there's so much creativity also going on in the midst of this pandemic. Um, one of one of the one a place I had almost given up on was New York City years ago. Once Giuliani and Bloomberg and those took over New York City, and not just New York. I, I have an article I wrote called "Philosophy for, in the, of the City." Oh no, sorry, called "Cities and Citizenship." And there's a wonderful fellow by the name of Shane Epting who also writes on these issues. There are many people who do. One of the goals of Euromodern capitalism is to de is to take the citizenship out of cities. Is to turn cities into urban landscapes of hedonistic play. The model for a capitalist so-called city is Disney World. I've often said the number one totalitarian state in the country is Disney World in <laughs> Disneyland. It's completely privatized. You give up complete control in, in, into people who are monitoring you everywhere. Every worker there is under control. They even have monitors for the monitors. And sometimes I'd go to visit that totalitarian state with my, with my kids and maximally I could stay here three days, right? I remember I went at a bus stop there and a woman showed up with a notes because the bus was to come. And I thought, so I said, hi, who are you? And she says, oh, I'm here. I'm just writing notes to see about the arrival time of the bus, even though they have computers monitoring. But then another woman walked up and she also had a pad. And I asked, who are you? And she said, oh, I'm monitoring her. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it goes on and on, but that is their wet dream. That's the world they want. And in the midst of this, the thing, the thing that you see about cities, as you know, is they go back, they're very ancient. They go back thousands of years, not just to Athens and place. They go back way, way before that in Africa and Asia, you know, there are places in South America with them. There are places 
in which humanity realize that there's a special kind of power that can only grow through communication, right? Some people call it politia or politics. And although people may say the word politics, capitalism is very anti-politics because it wants the market of politics, not politics of the market. And you could see the difference there because the market of politics subjugates political life into Disney World, into control, into consumption. But the politics of the market comes down to a simple question. What are we to do about it? That means we collectively take political responsibility for our economic situation. And we may decide there shouldn't be the market. There may be markets, the pluralistic sense of social relations through which people are able to have a more human or humane, or if you don't wanna be uh, anthropocentric, a more life-giving. Since it is the Jewish holiday, we could say it's more chesed, right? And chesed is a term that refers to a kind of giving that's purely for the sake. No, 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 I don't like the word purely. I don't like pure. Uh, it's that's for the sake of the flourishing of life of another. Like Miriam, when I talked about her, she is said, right? There are many examples. There's, there's Gudith in Ethiopia. There, there are um, many examples throughout his history of people who think about that way. But the idea about this concept is the way I look at when I talk about political commitment. Because when you're acting politically, it's reaching all the way into those who are anonymous. You don't know them. So the question is, why do you give? You see? It's a kind of loving act for flourishing. And what's interesting, even though I give you a Hebrew word, its origin is East African. Because you see, um, it's actually connected to the Meruneter word, an ancient East African language from the people of Kemet. Much later, it became known as Egyptians. But the problem is Kemet is it goes all the way through to Nubia, all the way through to, you know, connected to people today that would be Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, all the way up to what would be Libya and all of that today. But anyway, um, what's interesting is the root of it is the word ha, right? The closest way to spell it would be a K and an A. And, and in Hebrew, it became CH. And then it became high, and you could see the connection to life. But the word ka, interestingly enough, also means womb. You see where this is going? Because you see, the womb is rather interesting, isn't it? Because what is the womb receiving when it's producing life? It's not receiving a damn thing. The womb is, is giving and nurturing life. And the life in it is anonymous. I mean, today we may look and ask if it's a boy or girl, but what the hell does that mean? You see, that, that, that growing life is anonymous. It's a possibility. And this ka, womb, but it also means life. It means a relationship in which 
this possibility, this giving, this growing, that's how a lot of ancient peoples understood why we create an expansion of that in the form of a community. So if you see, if, you know that little criticism I gave from feminist theory, that the openness is powerful? Well, what is more powerful than giving life? But the thing about it, consumption, which is what capitalism is about, is, a, is what Julia Suarez and many also indigenous peoples in Abayala talk of as the death project. It's about taking from life. So what we see is we have a different model of political life. The capitalist model of political life is actually the elimination of it with the death project of control and consumption. An affirmative model, the yes of life, is the building of life with the understanding that life is always contingent. Because not only doesn't life last forever, it doesn't. But also with its radical irreplaceability, that creates a moment invest of investment in life because we realize that it's our responsibility. If we go back to when we talked about grieving before, part of the grieving is taking on the responsibility for the love. Yeah, better as opposed to not loving to begin with and then not having to grieve, right? Uh, yeah, I was just, as you were speaking, envisioning an Amazon warehouse <laughs> earlier. Uh, and, you know, my heart is seriously with, of course, this union drive that has been taking place, especially in Bessemer, Alabama right now, and really feeling for folks fighting back against being rendered robots amidst these, right, death machines, quite literally. Uh, and isn't Amazon one of, right, the kind of principal examples of that, right, kind of teleology of the market, like how divorced from relationality, right, is possible, is feasible, right, within the automation, within the increased, right, kind of technocracy that's being inaugurated right now. And so I feel like so many folks, especially amidst the past year of Corona are starting to sense into a little bit more like, wow, this is like getting a whole lot more dystopian, a whole lot faster than I had necessarily envisioned, <laughs> even sure. for have been reading Octavia Butler and that have been fans of right the dystopian genre for some time uh and so how powerful to be able to write unapologetically push back in the face of that to be able to engage in relationality to be able to make kin to be able to resist that kind of death wish uh it's such a trip hearing you speak to some of that etymology because uh I went from my PhD to Hawaii and write the word for foreigner or kind of for a white person there is haole, right? Ha aole, ha is the Hawaiian word um, in part for breath, right? And aole is without. So the right contraction would be without breath would be the word for, right? Haole or for white person. Because, right, when these colonizers, Captain Cook arrives, right, as opposed to, right, a more traditional sort of um, oceanic or so-called Polynesian, right, or Pacific greeting, right, face-to-face -face and sharing 
a breath with someone instead, right? Captain Cook and these Howleys greet one another like as far away as possible, like my arm to your arm outstretched. Like how can I like not touch someone to the fullest extent possible, but still allegedly be greeting them. And so it was so profound to me to hear over my years in Hawaii, a little bit of the storytelling from some Kanaka friends there around that being their understanding of colonizers, right? Initially naming them people without breath, like you're greeting another human, allegedly, but in a way that's so profoundly devoid of life. Yeah, and the word ha also means breath, by the way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? But you know, yeah. one, one thing I'd, I'd love to say just very quickly is that um, that point about political nihilism is right there in the Amazon example. Because the truth of the matter is, in, if we, in a world without political nihilism, it's very straightforward what needs to be done. If you're, it's straightforward. One is to create a trillionaire tax. And then the trillionaire tax that would actually create a trust for the workers and that every worker would automatically have a share in the company. It's just very straightforward. All of these problems, in fact, the dystopia we're in, are, have solutions that can be done. It's just that we're living in a situation of a lack of will and a form of bullying on the spirit against the political wherewithal to take action. But the truth of the matter is, all of these problems can be handled and it can be handled politically. You can say that again. Uh, well, out of respect for your time, we can go ahead and wrap up. I'm wondering, just based off of everything that we got into, if you'd want to share any closing words or any follow-up. Oh, no, as the last time, especially given um, the situation, I continue to say keep safe and healthy, but, and I continue to say this, despite the difficulty of the times, find joy, find joy. It not only reminds you of your humanity, but it's also a profound act of defiance and freedom. Find joy. Yeah, what potent words to close out on. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power, all power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.